Psalm 45. That's where we are this morning, continuing in the Savior Psalms. I, you know, I'm going to start somewhere else. You guys go ahead and turn there. But would you listen to this as you turn? This is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, Paul writes. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us for the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. Paul says, for I know whom I have believed. Do you know whom you have believed? Do you know Jesus One of the marvelous things about moving through the Scriptures, whether you're in the Old Testament, the New Testament, it doesn't make any difference. You you know Jesus better by reading Jesus' Word. By being in the Word of God, we know Him whom we have believed. And we know Him better and better. And this morning is no exception. I ask you to keep that question in mind. Do I really know whom I have believed? It's not a question of righteousness. It's not a question of who knows Him better. Because we all know that's me. It's not a matter who's closer to God or who's more holy. The question is, do I know whom I have believed? Do I really know Him? Are there aspects of Jesus I have yet to comprehend? I guarantee there are. Are there things about Him that I don't yet know? Do I know whom I have believed? Psalm 45. For the choir director, according to the Shoshanim, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a song of love. Verse 1, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. 
Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever, forever and ever, Lord. We want to be among those giving you thanks. And we do so this morning, even before we launch into understanding and comprehending the revelation of Psalm 45. And I pray that your spirit will guide us through these things in all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 33 years ago last Friday, on a warm Saturday evening in Southern California, July 26, 1986, my life changed forever as I watched my bride Cheryl walk down the aisle to the tune of Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini by Rachmaninoff. You know that one? Very, very popular in the 80s from the 1980s movie Somewhere in Time. Sappy. Great song, though. Beautiful music. But hey, Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme. We chose it because it wasn't Here Comes the Bride. Now, no offense, some of you, you know, came down the aisle to Here Comes the Bride. Some of you men stood there thinking, Here Comes the Bride. It's one of the more obvious tunes for a wedding. You would think, as kids, we all sang a a slightly different version of that song. (laughs) In which uh, the groom was skinny as a broom. Do you remember that? I'm not going to sing the rest of it. Just let it go. Here comes the bride. It's also called Troilich de Foot. That's about as good as I can do. I'm not German. It was written for the wedding scene of the opera Lohengrin by Richard Wagner, a notorious anti-Semite whose music and writings influenced Adolf Hitler. (laughs) I'm just here to ruin some weddings. You'll never hear, here comes the bride at a Jewish wedding for that reason. Because Wagner was such an anti-Semite. And in Wagner's opera, to make it worse, it was sung for a marriage doomed to failure. The drama of the opera ends with the grief-stricken bride collapsing in death. Here comes the bride. (laughs) You know, I would love to hear... Psalm 45, arranged and orchestrated by the sons of Korah because Psalm 45 is a wedding processional. It's a wedding processional. Now, it was Queen Victoria, you may not have known this, who made Here Comes the Bride popular all the way back in 1840. She walked down the aisle to Here Comes the Bride, leaving down the aisle to Mendelssohn's uh, exit music. And the whole thing was very bride-centered. In fact, weddings began to shift after 1840 to become more of a bride-centered thing. We went from Queen Victoria, the bride who the focus was on her, as she married Prince Albert to now Bridezilla's. It's a little frightening how this has changed. But I would call this psalm 
here comes the king. Because the king is the focus of this wedding procession. All eyes are on the king. All eyes, including those of the bride, are all on the king, focused on the king, looking at the king. It's all about the king. Oh, that my wedding had been that way. (laughs) Psalm 45. The heading, the heading is for the choir director, according to the Shoshanim, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a song of love. According to Shoshanim, if you were here Wednesday night, you already know this. Shoshanim means lilies. According to the lilies, which we think is either an emotionally evocative melodic style or perhaps maybe... It was actually a lily-shaped instrument, a very specific kind of beautiful constructed instrument. And there's some evidence that maybe that was the case, but it had to be played a certain way. And of the 150 psalms, there are three that are according to the Shoshinim. I believe it's three. All about the lilies or this lily music that, that follows with it. This is the only song of all the psalms that is called a song of love. That should catch your attention. A song of love. Some think David wrote it for the wedding of his son Solomon to an Egyptian princess, or, or perhaps Solomon wrote it for one of his own weddings, in which case he would have had to write 699 other songs for all of his other brides. Most likely, and according to the Babylonian Talmud, this psalm, Psalm 45, was written for the marriage of King Hezekiah to the daughter of the prophet Isaiah. Which is just interesting historically. But, but note this. While we read that it's according to Shoshanim, we understand it's a song of love. The heading also tells us very clearly this is a masculine of the sons of Korah. And a masculine among the psalms is a teaching psalm. Masculine means understanding, it means teaching, it means comprehension. It means this psalm was actually written for more than simply a wedding song. It is written for understanding. It's written to teach something here. And anytime you see a masculine at the heading of a psalm, understand there's more to this psalm than meets the eye. There's something here to teach. And this is what makes this king far more amazing because it's not about Solomon. It's not about Hezekiah or either of their weddings. No, as Jesus said in Matthew twelve forty two, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The Psalm 45 is about the king. It's been called the boldest messianic oracle in the Psalter or the Psalms. The boldest statement of Messiah among the 150 is right here. And in fact, just half of a single verse in this psalm packs an astoundingly divine punch. It is mind-blowing, especially for someone who's trying to figure out whom they have believed. Someone who's trying to understand who Jesus really is. I can't wait to take you there, but we're going to work our way to it. Also, almost three centuries before Christ, the 70 Jewish translators of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, all gathered together, and as they translated Psalm 45, they didn't lessen or shade the truth here in the slightest. They allowed it to speak, as boldly as it does, of the nature of King Messiah. 
This tells us all we need know about King Messiah and who He truly is. Among all the Savior Psalms, it is the most revealing of the King's identity and of the King's intentions. According to the Shoshanim, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a song of love. Verse 1, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the King. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Such a cool way to begin a psalm. I love this because it gives us insight into the writer's passion. My heart overflows, he says. It, it identifies his concentration, he says, to the king. The focus of the whole thing. And he even anticipates the inspiration to come. As he's writing this first verse, he knows a song is about to burst forth into his heart and out of his mouth and onto the page. He knows this is about to happen. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. It's like just waiting to say, I'm ready to write what you tell me, Lord. I'm ready to share about this king. I can't wait. There's inspiration astir here. Proverbs 16.23 says, The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Ever feel that way when you're talking about Jesus? You ever feel like the heart of the wise is instructing your mouth? That your lips, your words are persuasive? Are you of the gotta talk about him sort? You know, you're the one in Ace Hardware talking to someone in the hammer aisle all about Jesus while they're looking at the hammers. You're the one at the coffee shop ordering a a tall latte and sharing with the person behind the counter about the Christ because your tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You can't help yourself. There's inspiration. Or are you more of the I'll just keep Jesus to myself, ilk. I don't really need to talk about him here. Wow, if if I start sharing about Jesus now, people are going to think I'm weird. You know, I, I think we need more sons of Korah. More sons of Korah whose hearts are astir, ablaze, aflame if you will, with passion for Jesus and a desire to talk about, write about, share about the King. We need more sons of Korah who are anticipating what the Lord's going to say through us and in us when we open our mouths to identify who He is. More sons of Korah just praising Him in song, in word, in deed. Now, I understand some might think, I I thought about that. I've heard you push us on that before, Rick, that that, that we should go out and be evangelists. And and I, I hear that, but you don't know my past. And everybody in Oak Harbor or everybody in Anacortes does. And I can't go out there with my past talking about Jesus. Too many people know where I've come from. They know what I've done. Do you know the past of the sons of Korah? Did you realize that they come from their father Korah, who was the one who led that bold rebellion in the wilderness against God and Moses early on? And yet they identify themselves throughout the Psalms as the sons of Korah. You might as well call yourself a son of shame. We're among the sons of rebellion. But see, God did something here with the sons of Korah. He took rebellion and turned it into faithfulness. 
He took what was roots of of rebellion, dried up, shriveled the roots, and replanted praise that now comes out of the sons of Korah so that this particular son of Korah, and we don't know which one it is. It may be He-Man, master of the universe. It may be one of the other guys. (laughs) But his heart is overflowing with a good theme. How about you? Listen, get your eyes off yourself and the past. Here comes the king. Eyes on the king. Verse 2, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness, righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. I want to talk to you about the king for a minute. And the first thing to note here, the first thing that this son of Korah calls out and points to, knowing whom he has believed, the first thing is the king's stature. The king's stature. The Apostle Paul may have had verse 2 in mind. Verse 2 which reads, Therefore God has blessed you forever. He may have had that in mind when he wrote Romans 9 verse 5, Israel from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. God has blessed you forever. And this one, this Messiah, this Christ, talked about in the psalm, Paul turns around and says, yes, he's God blessed forever. And if this is what was on Paul's mind when he wrote Romans chapter 9, it could explain his next thought. Where Paul says in Romans 9, 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. See, Messiah is going to come, the psalmist says. Messiah comes. Messiah is God blessed forever. And Paul says, Christ came through Israel. Messiah came through Israel. Messiah and Christ, you know, same name. It's just Greek or Hebrew. Mashiach, Christos. And he's coming through Israel. Paul says, and he's God blessed forever. And God's word has not failed. God's word does not fail. The point is, the blessing of God on the king is directly related to the response of his descendants. What's marvelous is that we sit here 2,000 years later still asking the question, do you know whom you've believed? We're still talking about Jesus. We're still at the end of the aisle looking at the king who's waiting. We still are magnifying and lifting up the King. We are still responding to the King who is God blessed forever. And the blessing has continued across 2,000 years and it will not stop. Messiah is blessed. Now hold that thought and look at verse 4. Maybe you caught it when I read this. When it says, in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth. And I said, meekness, righteousness. I didn't say meekness and righteousness because there is no and there. And translators are divided on how to write this, but it's va'an va'sedek in the Hebrew, which literally translated is just meekness righteousness. It's as if the son of Korah takes these two concepts, which really seem (laughs) unique and distinct, and he squashes them together, blends them 
to speak of one who is unlike any man, a man of meekness, righteousness. See, the tendency of humanity is when we start to get righteous, meekness goes away. Or when we settle into meekness, well, then righteousness, because now we're in, I'm meek, I'm lowly, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the sinner. And so we we find a difficulty balancing meekness and and humility with, with righteousness and the glory and grandeur that comes with perfection. But this Messiah is unlike any man. He is perfect in meekness, righteousness. He said of himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then he gives his only self-description in the Gospels. Jesus says, For I am gentle and humble in heart, gentle and meek, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He refers to himself as meek. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, his best friend John refers to him in this way. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the righteous one, and He is the meek one. No man ever walked the face of the earth more meekly than Jesus Christ. And no one has ever been or will ever be more righteous except in Jesus Christ. Oh, there's a thought. Okay, that just blew my mind. I'm in the process of saying no one will ever be as righteous as Jesus only to realize I am as righteous as Jesus by the blood of Jesus who has made me righteous. I don't, I don't deserve that. I, I can't comprehend that. But would you look around at the righteousness? Go ahead. I'll wait. I'm fine looking at the back of the head in front of me. Don't make me look at another person, Rick. We already did the greeting thing. Had enough fellowship for one day. This is righteousness. Blood bought by Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, you want to produce meekness, righteousness in your own life? Think about that, that your righteousness comes from Him. That'll make you meek. But He is the one of meekness, righteousness. Only in Jesus do we find this. Only in Jesus does this begin to be developed in us, in His people. And then at the end of verse 4, it says, Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Uh, Some don't like that. They think, well, if this is about Messiah, and Messiah is Jesus and all that, then why does He have to be taught anything? The word teach there can also be translated shoot. As in the firing off of an arrow, like an archer shooting an arrow. And that's what it means here, because uh, look at verse 5, your arrows are sharp. So it's let your right hand shoot fearful things from you. Your arrows are sharp, and the peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. And my friends, the arrows... The sharp, piercing arrows of this fair, gracious, mighty, sword-bearing king. This this Messiah of truth and meekness, righteousness. His arrows will pierce every human heart. No one, no one will be left out. Every heart will be pierced by the arrows of the Christ. The question is, how? How will your heart be pierced? Will it be pierced with conviction so that you die to self and live for the King? Or will your heart rather be pierced in rebellion such that you die in sin? 
The arrows are flying from Jesus. Oh, may they pierce our hearts with conviction. And put this way, as I think about this king, it seems an awesome, fearful thing to stand before him. And it would be, except for the fact that the king's full stature, the stature as we're talking about, all this glory, all this grandeur, all this majesty, his full stature was lifted up and stretched out on the cross where he died. The moment of the full stature of the Messiah raised up before the people. Think about this. This is an awesome truth. His wedding comes after his death. I don't know anyone else that is like that. You know, for all of us, hopefully wedding's going to come before, you know. Hopefully the death won't come soon after, you know. We get married and then, you know, and we and we, we pray for, we hope for, we desire, you know, long years in that joyful union. But in his case, he had to die first. The death precedes the wedding because the king who died is coming for his bride. The king who already was killed has resurrected. And my friends, there is only one way that could be possible. Verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. So he begins describing the king's stature. And now we go directly into secondly, second thing about the king, the king's state. His state And verse 6 is absolutely audacious. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's the most astounding thing. Underline this, circle it, highlight it, put little stars around it, whatever you have to do. The most astounding, remarkable, marvelous statement in the entire Hebrew Scriptures right there. Psalm 45, 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And some translators were uncomfortable with that. Revised Standard Version, New English Bible, some others. They try to soften it a bit to make it that that royal divinity, you know, to say, take this unflinchingly bold statement and retranslate it rather than your throne, O God, is forever and ever. They say, your divine throne. Kind of a British thing, you know? Because the throne was divine. He rose to the point of being the king, you were divine. Your divine throne is not what it says. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What does that mean? It means the king must be God. It means the king of this procession is God in the flesh, God himself. And in the event that anyone is uncertain about that understanding, which is what it says, the New Testament turns around and confirms it in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, which reads, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom, Psalm 45, 6. Your throne, O God, the king in this wedding procession is Christ, our God. 
And this is a mystery that can only be explained one way, only one way in the incarnation. The only way you can make any sense of this, Emmanuel, God with us, the word God made flesh. That was the Bible refers to time and time again. And even Jesus saying after Philip asked him, show us the father. And he says, have you been with me so long and you don't know me? Hey, do you know whom you have believed? Do we comprehend and understand who we're talking to when we talk to the Christ? When we worship Jesus? Derek Kidner says it's the Old Testament language bursting its banks to demand more than human fulfillment. This king is God. And what is this king holding? He's holding the scepter of uprightness. Literally there in your Bibles, verse 6, that scepter, spoken twice, scepter of uprightness, the scepter of your kingdom is Shabbat in the Hebrew, which is a, a word that we've looked at somewhat recently. It's the first time it's, it's used is Genesis 49.10. The scepter, Shabbat, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter. This scepter is also translated rod. It's the rod of the Lord, my shepherd. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your Shabbat, your rod, and your staff, they comfort me. So here is, O oh God, upon his throne that is forever and ever, holding that scepter of uprightness. And the Hebrew pastor who already quoted verse 6, he continues to quote verse 7, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Verse 7. That's an interesting thought. Your God, your throne, O God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and God, your God, has anointed you. By the way, the word anointed there is Meshacha, which is where we get Mashiach, which is where we get Messiah. So he is the anointed one, and he is the God upon the throne, and yet now the Son of Korah says, and God, your God. Well, how does that work? <laughs> Same as Psalm 110, verse 1, where David writes, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, which one is the Lord? Both. Well, which one is God? Both. Because Jesus is God. And God the Father is God. And Jesus is Lord. And God the Father is Lord. And we're going to get to Psalm 110, that Savior Psalm, a little later in the summer. But Jesus, who is both God and Lord, understand this. When the psalmist writes, therefore God your God has anointed you, that is not hard for Jesus to take. What do you mean? What I'm saying is, Jesus who is both God and Lord has no problem calling God the Father His God and Lord. You see, in heaven there's no posturing. There's no pulling rank, there's no positioning for authority. Where's Jim? There he is. There's no playing a card, a calling card that states 
your right, your authority, your rule, your position. Jesus doesn't walk around going, (laughs) I understand you used to call him God. That's me now. You prayed to him as Lord, but I've got that. Right here. You don't see that in heaven. What you hear from Jesus is Luke twenty two twenty seven. For who is greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. That's marvelous. So Jesus refers to God as God. And Jesus refers to God as Lord. And God the Father by the Spirit, inspiring the Son of Korah, refers to Jesus as God, who is also Lord, and they don't have any problem with it, neither then should we. And notice also the king's gladness. I like this. It comes, verse 7, by way of the oil of joy, and also down in verse 8, out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments are making him glad. Perhaps those stringed instruments are shoshanim. Lily-shaped instruments? I don't know. But the oil of joy. The oil of joy. Where does the oil of joy come from? It's not an essential oil, and yet it is essential. The oil of joy. We look so hard to find anything in our lives that will lift our spirits. We look for it through relationships. And when that doesn't work, we look for it in substances, herbs, spices, foods, drinks, pills, anything that will lift and try and bring us out of depression and discouragement. You know what? When we are in that state, you know what we need? We need the oil of gladness. And it is the spirit of the living God. You want to be happy? Pray for the spirit. You want to be lifted out of darkness? Pray in the spirit. The Spirit of the living God. And, by the way, something that accompanies that, coming right out of the ivory palaces, stringed instruments, man, it's the joy of worship. Those two things together will lift any broken heart. The oil of gladness, the oil of the Spirit, and the worship of Jesus. What a powerful combination. And these things do not wear off like all the substances of humanity. And on top of that, worshiping Jesus, looking at the King, noting Him whom we have believed, we realize He smells great. <laughs> we used to say, man, you stink good. <laughs> he smells wonderful. And listing out here, cassia and aloes and, and myrrh. Myrrh. Wait a minute. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. That was one of the gifts of the Magi. And isn't that a burial spice? Yeah, yeah, you know who he's talking about. There's only one reason why this king is scented with myrrh. This is the king who had once died, but now has risen. This is the king who was anointed with the spice of myrrh in his burial. And now is alive. And now at the head of the aisle stands the king. Here comes the king. We see his stature. We recognize his state. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But but now look just to his right. Psalm 45, verse 9. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Let's be very clear about this. Who is 
the queen. Well, depending on your denominational tradition and or church background. Wait a minute. What would you call the bride of a king? A queen. This is the bride of the king now. And she's referred to as the queen because she's marrying the king. And that's what that's what the person who marries the king is called. The queen. Do I need to go further back into British history to try and explain this king and queen situation here? Okay. After the king's glorious stature, after describing and singing of his divine state, we come to now note this number three, the bride. And it's the bride's submission. The bride's submission. Brides, wives, listen up. The bride's submission. Oh, that's so politically incorrect. (laughs) That is so out of step with this culture. Watch this. The bridal queen, or of the bridal queen, the son of Korah writes, verse 10, Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. This queen, this daughter, this bride is called upon to bow to the king. This is bridal submission. He calls her, O daughter. And then the psalmist calls for her to submit. Submit. In this marital relationship. And by the way, this has sound biblical precedent. Colossians 3.18 Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, you're not off the hook. Love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Paul says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. He repeats. And then husbands, Ephesians 5.25, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. But this precedence doesn't just go ahead to Paul. It goes all the way back to the beginning. In fact, verse 10, which says, forget your people and your father's house. This is what the bride is told to do. The bride, the queen, the daughter. She's told, forget your people, forget your father's house. And in the same way, that's the feminine corollary to the masculine, Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's the new union. That's the new standard. That's the new family. That's the one that goes nuclear. (laughs) Nuclear family. See what I'm saying? And father and mother are now extended. And and we have a real confusion sometimes in this culture. Maybe you haven't, but, but in a culture that says blood is thicker than water. Well, only in the case of Jesus. Because according to the Bible, when a man marries, he leaves father and mother and he clings to his wife. She now becomes the most important. And in the same way, daughters, wives, brides, queens, you forget your people and your father's house. It's it's not like, forget about them, never talk to them again, cut them off. No, it's in light of the king. In light of the king, he, he now is your, your husband, your king. 
talking about Jesus, so don't get big heads, guys. Jesus the King is now the focus. You leave everything else. It's kind of like Jesus says, no one can come to me unless he hates father and mother. What? You're supposed to hate my father and my mother to, to be a follower of Jesus? He's saying that your love for him must be so intense that anything else by comparison looks like hate. He is first and foremost. Forget your people. Forget your father's house. But you know what? And i got to take a little side note here. A little rabbit trail for you this morning. This God-ordained order of male and female, mutual respect and submission. That's what a marriage is. It's mutual respect and submission. This godly order is being systematically undermined and assaulted here at the end of the age. And even setting aside the the focus that this is the bride and the king is Jesus, and this is a a wedding psalm of the bride and the king, even if you step back from that, God has an order for husbands and wives. God has an order for men and women, and it is not for one to dominate over the other. Remember, not even God the Son is dominant over God the Father, or vice versa. There's no posturing in heaven. So by the same standard, there is no posturing in marriage. There is no posturing in the male-female relationship. But we're seeing it. I told Cheryl yesterday, I'm going to call this the Jezebelization of America. I like that. I'm going to write a book. The Jezebelization of America. Listen, just see if this doesn't sound familiar. We see it in militant abortionism. As in the Shout Your Abortion movement. Can you even believe there is a movement called Shout Your Abortion? We're standing here talking about declaring the king, and the enemy would say, Shout Your Abortion. We see it in epidemic pornography. We see it in sexual immorality that is rampant in our society. So rampant it is just the way it is. We see it in the rise of witchcraft and sorcery. The embrace of idol worship, which is growing tragically and radically in our culture. We see it in the emasculation of the American male and a radical feminism that is dead set against any and all male authority. Along with the all-out war on biblical male-female gender. And with all of that, the attempt to silence the word of God. That's what Jezebel did. That's what she was all about. She tried to silence the prophets. She usurped the authority of her husband. She was into witchcraft. She was sexually immoral. It's stunning when you read, go back and read about Jezebel in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's no wonder that further on, Jesus would warn against Jezebel in the church. And her her spirit and her attitude and, and what she's all about. And by the way, there's a book coming out by Dr. Michael Brown. It'll be out August the 6th. And it's called Jezebel's War with America. So I don't have to write the book. It's already been written. But you might want to check it out. Jezebel's War with America, where he takes the time to look back at Jezebel in the Scriptures and then looks at and walks through what's going on in our country where we see this rise of, again, radical feminism. And I'm not anti-woman. This is not a knuckle-dragging church, okay? I'm not like, oh, women, you got to keep them in their place. Men, men, you know. No. (laughs) 
The Bible tells us there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. So I'm all about fairness and equality and, and, and all of that with men and women. But, but it's no surprise that when a group of radical feminists launched a website, they called it Jezebel.com. Why would you do that? Did you not read the story? Especially because she ends up dog food. She does. Look it up. It's incredible. The site went on to produce an encyclopedia called the Book of Jezebel, which, among other things, defines children as a side effect of sex and puts God on their list of wretched misogynists. We see this happening. And Jesus said that's exactly what would take place. And he warns the church of the last days. And we just studied this a few months back. Let me refresh your memory. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, which reads, I have this against you, as he writes to the church at Thyatira, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. and She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Will the church tolerate that woman Jezebel? Many... And I say this with great sorrow. Many churches already have. Many churches completely embrace all that the Jezebel spirit would teach. And have embraced the attack on this nation, on this culture, but more importantly, on the people of God. By this whole issue of the Jezebel spirit. You might say, well, what can I do? I mean, I see all these things happening, but what what can I do? If I speak out, I'm going to be shot down, probably. If I say anything, what what impact can I possibly have? Psalm 45, 11, because He is your Lord, bow down to Him. That is, submit to the King. And that has implications for every aspect of our lives. Men, if you submit to the king, you will love your wives as Christ loved the church. Giving himself up for her. Women, if you submit to the king, you will submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. And we will not play the posturing game anymore. If you submit to the king, brothers and sisters, that means we're going to do things his way. We're going to look it up. We're going to study it out and say, that's what he says to do. Therefore, that's what we're going to do. By the way, that's why we don't have women as shepherds at the Bridge Fellowship. It's not because women aren't completely capable. As a matter of fact, I would think that if we gathered a a room full of 12 or 15 women, they probably could get more done than we guys get done. But that's beside the point. God called for men to shepherd. He said they need to be husbands of one wife. And there's no question of what that means. There's no gender confusion in the Scriptures. It's why we do what we do. We take the Word of God seriously and literally. Why? Because we bow ourselves to the King. And that's what the bride's told to do. And I want to be a good bride. I want to be desirous to the King. By the way, note that. He says, verse 11, Then the King will desire your beauty. 
When? When you forget your people and your father's house and he and you bow down before him. That's beautiful to him. And you'll be desirous of him. And so the bride's submission is called out. And number four, if you're keeping track of all this, the bride's splendor. Look at the bride's splendor. Verse 12, the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Tyre was the center of trade, fashion, beauty, riches, and wealth. It was a seaport town, seaport city. It was an island off the coast of Tyre. And this was just a seat of riches. So it was a picture of wealth in the day. And so to say the daughter of Tyre is going to bring gifts and bring wealth to you. That she's going to come with a gift. Wow, that's to say you are going to be so blessed. As a matter of fact, think about it this way. By bowing to the king, the bride loses nothing, gains everything. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeit his soul? But we could say on the converse of that, what does it profit a man or a woman to gain Christ Jesus as Lord? You get everything. Verse 13. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. Now, you might say, wait a minute. Okay, I'm getting confused. The king's daughter is his bride? That's weird. Daughter is an affectionate term, a term of endearment here. And it also can mean any woman of marriageable age. So whether she's called the queen or the daughter or the bride in this wedding processional, it's the same woman that's being referred to here. And in verse 14, after stating that she is all glorious within, and and that may imply either she's just glorious on the inside or maybe implying she's glorious within her bridal chambers. Either way, she's just glorious. Her clothing interwoven with gold, verse 14, she will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her will be brought to you. Who are these virgin companions? So you remember, remember, don't forget this. This isn't just a wedding song. It's a masculine. It's a teaching psalm. And the whole thing is written as a prophecy in type of a greater truth. Of the king who is Messiah, Jesus Christ. Of the bride who is the church. Those who follow after and bow to the king. And now the virgin companions, who are they? They are the same as the virgins in Jesus' parable, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Well, who are they? I'm not going to read it this morning. I'll let you read it on your own time. Think it through. But the virgins, remember the parable? There are ten virgins. They all come along waiting for the, waiting for the wedding procession. And five of them are wise, they bring extra oil. Speaking of the Spirit of God, five are foolish, they don't bring any extra oil. Their lamps burn out. The wise virgins are waiting a long time. Their lamps burn out, but they have extra oil. So they load up and their lamps are lit. And the others are like, oh, what do we do? We'll go find some oil. And they go off to find it and they miss the wedding. And growing up, I would hear that parable and think, oh man, I don't want to be one of those who miss the wedding. 
And I would be, I'd hear that from the pulpit in my church. You don't want to be one of the ones, the foolish virgins who missed the wedding. And the whole key to the whole thing is the Holy Spirit. And I grew up in a church that did not teach the Holy Spirit. I mean, how ironic is that? You don't want to miss the wedding. How, how do I not miss the wedding? By the oil. Well, how do I get the oil? Well, it's not the Holy Spirit. What? I'm confused. The oil is the Spirit. And it's by the Spirit of God that a person is saved. Sealed for salvation. But you know what? The problem is that the virgins have nothing to do with the church. And that the, the virgins are not the church. The virgins are Israel. Israel. Friends of the bridegroom. Friends of the bride. Describe a picture of Israel. You see, understand this. While Israel, the Jewish people, were chosen first, and then the bride comes second, the bride is revealed first in the marriage of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 7-9, and Israel comes after. Israel adds to the splendor of the bride, even, even as the bride loves and honors her virgin companions. Look at verse 15. They will be led forth, that is, the virgins. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. Another just a little side thought, I'll pop this in there, and you might want to jot it down because I know it's not up here behind me. How are the 144,000 witnesses Evangelists of Israel, Jewish people, how are they described in Revelation 14? As virgins, as chaste. This picture, this thread runs all the way through. It's an unbroken type and example. And they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. Paul says, Romans eleven twenty six, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord, when I take away their sins from the standpoint of the gospel, their enemies, for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God made covenant promises to Israel that must not, cannot be broken. And one of those covenant promises, one of those unconditional covenant promises, is that Israel will be led into the kingdom. Ushered in. Into, as it says here, the king's palace. The king's stature is at issue here. The king's state is on display. The bride's submission and the bride's splendor. And by the way, yes, that splendor does include the bride's love for uh, and of Israel. Her companions, her virgin companions, which should have an impact, a dramatic impact on how we view Jewish people. Whether they realize they're the virgins of this wedding procession or not. That we love them. And they are part of the splendor. You see, we've been grafted in to the promises of Israel. We've been brought into this whole thing. It's so mind-blowing. It's a several-week series in and of itself just to talk about. But read Romans 9, 10, and 11. And we've been over these things many times here at the bridge, so I'm kind of relying on that a little bit for your understanding. But finally in all this, the, the king's stature and state, the bride's submission and her splendor, finally the metaphoric picture, and that's what it is because it's speaking beyond, it's a masculine. The picture extends one more time to, number five, the king's 
sons. Verse 16. In the place of your fathers will be your sons. And you shall make them princes in all the earth. In the place of your fathers will be your sons. Speaking of the king, speaking of Jesus, his fathers in the flesh are Israel. Right? Does anybody dispute that? That his fathers in the flesh, his genealogy, his line, his seed comes from David. Comes from Judah. Through Israel. So his fathers are Israel. His sons, as it says, in the place of your fathers will be your sons. Now we have those who are sons born of the Spirit. Those who are born again. John 1.12, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. In the place of the fathers come the sons. Now, don't misunderstand, it's not replacement theology. It's not saying the church has replaced Israel. But for a time, the church steps up and now is God's work of salvation because Israel rejected. And yet, because God promised Israel, He's got a plan in place that will see the salvation of many. And will be remarkable as Israel comes to faith in Jesus Christ, Yeshua, Hamashiach, their Messiah. John 3, verse 3 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he says, you shall make them princes in all the earth. Well, I think we know all about that. Princes in all the earth. In the coming kingdom. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 tells us He is bringing many sons to glory. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. He has made us to be a kingdom. Priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And the wedding procession is coming to a conclusion as the bride and the king stand at the altar. As the wedding is pronounced. As the marriage feast of the Lamb now comes. And the joy is all over. The joy is among the virgins. The joy is with the bride. The joy is with the king. As they all rejoice together in this marvelous moment, and it concludes verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever. Literally, he says, I will cause your name to be named in the family line. I will cause your name to be named. Why? Because naming the name of Jesus is what brings us to thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen and amen. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up together. This whole prophetic picture, as I said many times through, is presented in terms of a royal wedding procession. Why? Why does he choose that image? And why is that image actually used throughout the Scriptures all the way till you get to Revelation 19? And there it is, the marriage feast of the Lamb. This, this idea of this royal wedding procession. Why? Well, if you were to look back at the heading one more time, this is a song of love. A shir yedidot. Shir yedidot in the Hebrew is literally translated a song of loves, plural. It's a song of loves. The love of the king for the bride. The love of the bride for the king. And John writes in 1 John 4.19, We love because He first loved us. And this is what we're caught up in. 
a procession, a love song procession. And so I ask again, do you know whom you have believed? And is your love proceeding to Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus? He invites you to the wedding this morning. If you have not yet received your invitation, here it is. Jesus Christ died that you might live. Jesus Christ loved that you might love. Lord, your word is absolutely astounding to me. So picturesque. So profound. And while we might say, hey, these sons of Korah were men who knew how to write songs. I know, Lord, these sons of Korah were not smart enough to figure this stuff out. Any more than any man, any woman could have put together a thousand years before Christ what we have just read. That your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And you are the king and you have a bride. And there are virgin companions coming to the wedding. This whole picture is so perfect and so expressed throughout the New Testament, throughout the life of Christ. And now in His church of 2,000 years. And Lord, sometimes I don't understand how we can read something like that and not comprehend at least to some degree how vast Your love is for us. How great. That this, this faith, this fellowship, this family, this church, that which You have built, it, it, it's... It's everything. This is what our lives are about. But I pray, Lord Jesus, understanding that the only thing that makes us move, the only thing that changes our perspective is knowing whom we have believed. When we declare this morning we have believed the King. And we have loved the King because He first loved us. And I pray, Lord, if there's any among us who have not accepted the love of Jesus, would You clear the air in this place this morning, whether it's in this service or the next, so that people can come to decisions of faith and trust in You. Oh, Father, draw us home. In Jesus' name, Amen. So if you have not accepted the Lordship, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus as your King, and you know if you have or not, I don't even need to try and define that in Christian words or spiritual language. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, what are you waiting for? This is what it's all about. Come to Him this morning. Come to any one of us. Pray. Receive Him as Lord and Savior and King. And start your new life with Him today. That's not my invitation, it's His. And if there's anything that we can pray for you about, won't you come as we sing this song?